Right, so, Father in heaven, as we gather again and turn our sights to these uh, often overlooked, often misunderstood, perhaps, and such important topics of the day in, day out work of what it means to be pastor elders, I pray that you would provide clarity. And I pray that we'd all grow in these things. There can be this sense of that these tasks, these abilities, these virtues are givens or nots. And I pray that our focus here in this session would clarify that, that these are virtues and graces in which you love to train your people, mature your people, even where they're was no seeming gift of teaching in some season of life that you change that, you give it and you grow it, you mature it. And so would you bless us now in this focus on teaching and sober-mindedness. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Forty-four years ago this fall, the, the day is October 14th, 1979. John Piper felt himself, he says, irretrievably called to pastoral ministry. He was on sabbatical after teaching six years at Bethel College. He was studying Romans 9. And reflecting back on that season, he would say this, and this is from 2002, John's words. I'll resist the urge to do an impression. As I studied Romans 9 day after day, I began to see a God so majestic and so free and so absolutely sovereign that my analysis merged into worship. And the Lord said, in effect, I will not simply be analyzed, I will be adored. I will not simply be pondered, I will be proclaimed. My sovereignty is not simply to be scrutinized, it is to be heralded. It is not grist for the mill of controversy. It is gospel for sinners who know that their only hope is the sovereign triumph of God's grace over their rebellious will. So in 2019, on the 40th anniversary of John's sense of call to pastoral ministry, we asked Justin Taylor if he would write an article for Desiring God. Justin's a dear brother. He worked for John, like 99 or 2000 until in the 2005 when he went to Chicago to work on the ESV study Bible. Justin is a, uh, a very careful thinker, editor, but also he loves history, especially recent history of evangelicalism and of Piper's life and influences. And so Justin was willing and we published an article at Desiring God called, This Word Must Be Preached. Which quotes extensively from John's journals that he wrote out longhand that night, about 1,800 words that he wrote out that night. And it very much relates to our second session here this morning. So three notes from that night and Justin's analysis of it. First, Justin comments, it's remarkable how realistic John was that night. He knew himself well. And then he quotes from John's journal. Here's John again. I know, really know, I would despair as a pastor. I would despair that my people are not where I want them to be. I would despair at ruptured study and writing goals. I would despair at barren administrative details. 
But then he asks himself, who shall shepherd the flock of God? People who love barrenness? People who feel no flame to study God and write it out? People who weep not over the tares and the choking wheat? Is the criterion for judging one's fitness for the ministry that one feels no pain in the mechanics of running a church? Is the calling so managerial in our day that the word burning to be spoken and lived and applied is no qualification? End of quote. Second, another quote from John's journal, contrasting himself with his father. His father was a traveling evangelist. John says, my heart is not in one-time shots or one-week shots. I'm not a gifted evangelist. My heart leans hard to regularity of feeding. That's the work of pastor elders in the local church. Regularity of feeding. I believe little in the injection method to health. It's not about COVID. This is 1979. (laughs) I believe in the long, steady diet of rich food in surroundings of love. Brother, that's, that gets at the heart of our work. The long, steady diet of rich food in surroundings of love in the local church. Third then, Justin comments about John that he had a hunger to be the direct instrument of the word. That's amazing. What, what a privilege, brothers. For John, that meant being a local church pastor and not a seminary professor. He wanted to be a vessel of God's word in the church. So he left the academy for the pastorate. He became a preacher. But he emphatically did not cease being a teacher because pastors are teachers. So in our second session here, we turn to the two qualifications for the eldership that correspond most directly with the two main tasks of pastor elders in the local church. The two tasks, if you want to make them rhyme, are feeding and leading. Feed the flock, we lead the flock. The two qualifications then are able to teach and sober-minded. Able to teach corresponds with feeding, teaching. Sober-mindedness corresponds with governing, decision-making, leading in the context of the local church. And we'll end with how all of us, young and old, perhaps especially young, but also old, those aspiring to the work, might grow in these two central qualifications. One of the big points I want to make here is these are not just givens or not. Teaching ability in the local church can be developed from what feels like nothing. And and John Piper Uh, He couldn't even give oral presentations in his classes in high school. I mean, he he went from nothing of public speaking ability and desire to a life of ministry by God going to work on him over time. So feeding the flock then, the first part here on able to teach. Perhaps you can imagine a scenario, maybe you've even sat in a pastor's meeting or elders meeting or something like this happens. Um, A certain man's being presented as an elder candidate And maybe one of the brothers has recommended him or is advocating for him. And the question comes, oh, Cecil, 
Is he able to teach? And let's say that you know, he's not known as a teacher. The question comes because we all know Cecil, but uh, he's, not, he's not known as a, as a teacher in our congregation. And so then the one advocating for Cecil's candidacy re- responds, well, teaching's not his strength, but he's willing to do public speaking, rarely, but rarely willing to do it. But if you put a gun to his head, <laughs> stop. That is not what we're talking about. Such a minimalistic understanding is not what Paul means by able to teach. Rather, what he's after and what we should be after is a more maximalistic assertion. He's the kind of man who will hardly stop teaching, even if you put a gun to his head. Pastors and elders, paid and unpaid, full-time and lay, are to be teachers. In, in greater degree and lesser degree. There's some flexibility in there. We're not all exactly the same, but teachers nonetheless. Able to teach, just one word in the Greek. Alan, you got your Greek? Didaktikos. Didaktikos. And this is the most central of the elder qualifications. Maybe you've heard someone who loves to emphasize chiasms. If you're doing a chiasm, of the way I count the 15 elder qualifications, this is eight. This is in the middle of the X, all right? I think there's significance in putting this at the middle. It's the most central of the qualifications, and it's also the most distinctive. It's the single qualification that most clearly distinguishes the pastor elders from the deacons. Able to teach, or maybe even better, apt to teach, or prone to teach. We're going to take that apart, spend a good part of the session getting at the essence of it and the implications of this didacticos. Such teaching bent and ability in pastors is not to be minimal, but maximal. We want the kind of man who will hardly stop teaching, even if you were to put a gun to his head. As he learns, he wants to teach. As he studies, he can't help but think about teaching. How would I repackage this and present it to others? He loves to teach with all the planning that teaching takes, the discipline it takes, the patience, the energy, the exposure to criticism that good teaching requires. He's willing to bear those costs in preparation and in criticism because God's put this desire on his heart to teach. A pastor who is didacticos, able to teach, is not just able if necessary, but rather eager to teach when possible. He's bent to teach. He is not only able in terms of skill, but he's also eager in terms of proclivity. Now, in English, we have the word didactic. That may almost get at it. Like you've read into the other qualifications, didactic. What does it mean for a man to be didactic? We use it in other context. Maybe it's helpful to coin a term. Sometimes it's enjoyable to coin terms. That didactic's built on the Greek didache for teaching. But I don't know that we have an easy equivalent. Didactic's the closest thing for didacticos. So maybe we need something like didactive or my best effort is teachative. That's a new word. You shouldn't know it. We have the word talkative, 
All right? Talkative refers to someone who is fond of or given to talking. I'm assuming that more or less this is a room of talkative people. Though often God calls men to ministry who are introverts in normal human interaction, but are real talkative in the pulpit. And that can be a glorious thing too. So I'm not assuming this is a room of talkative people necessarily. Though, as a lot, ministers can be really talkative people. And we'll talk about the dangers with that in the next session. The point is that New Testament local leaders and pastor elders are teachers. Christianity is a teaching movement. Jesus was the consummate teacher. He chose and discipled his men to be teachers who discipled others. After his ascension, the apostles spoke on Christ's behalf and led the early church through their teaching. And when their living voices died, their writings became the church's ongoing pole star along with the Old Testament scriptures, but surpassing it, for teaching the churches. And so, fitting with the very nature of the Christian faith itself, Christ appoints men who are teachative, didactikos, which entails at least three important realities that are more or less at the heart of it or immediate implications that you can't really parse out from it. So this is our main outline for this session, or at least the beginning part on uh, being able to teach. What are we looking for in our church for elder, pastor elders, what are we looking for in ourselves? Here are my three ways of summarizing it. We're looking for men who are equipped to teach, men who are effective at teaching, and men who are eager to teach. And I hope that parsing it out there may help people move forward in their training and maturation of this qualification. So first of all, equipped to teach. A man may be off the charts teachative, and be little more than a liability if he has not been sufficiently equipped in sound doctrine. The miracle of the new birth does not include instantaneous miracles of equipping for leadership. Now, we might grant a kind of miracle status to any sinner who comes in time to have a genuinely healthy, good theology, but This is a long-range miracle that gets worked out through diligent training over time. It's not the endowment of a mere moment. As Walter Hendrickson wrote 50 years ago in 1974, disciples are made, not born. Teachers are made, not born. Jesus spoke about a righteous scribe being trained for the kingdom. He brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. Matthew 13, 52. A disciple is not above his teacher, Jesus says. But everyone, when he is fully trained, trained teachers. It didn't just happen. Luke 6, 40. To become a Christian requires no training, just faith. Now to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Romans 4, 5. But one does not become a teacher, nor does one become practically holy through faith alone. Rather, grace trains us. I love that passage, Titus 2.11. Grace trains in our lives over time, trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And in those whom Christ gives to his church as pastor teachers, he sees to their being trained in the sound words. That's the language in 1 Timothy 4, 6. 
You've been trained, Timothy, in sound words. Training is necessary for maturity. Hebrews 5.14. And training requires the discipline of persisting in momentary discomfort, even pain, for the joy that is set before us, for the reward. So when we emphasize in pastors the necessity of a proclivity and ability to teach, we do not overlook a critical component of Christian teachers' training. Pastors must be equipped in sound doctrine to teach sound doctrine. It doesn't happen without the work. Now, I don't think it necessarily has to be an official MDiv degree from a seminary. That can be very helpful. But there's many other ways to be trained for the Christian ministry. And it's something to keep our eyes on as we seek to raise up pastor elders in our churches. So first one, equipped at teaching, equipped to teach. Second, effective at teaching. The pastor elders of the church must also be effective teachers. That is, they must be skillful, able, ability. Able meaning good in a relative sense. It's not enough if they want to teach and have been trained in sound doctrine, but they're not any good at teaching. Then the church becomes a sitting duck or an unprotected flock. If the pastors aren't effective teachers, it's only a matter of time until wolves carry the day and feast on the lambs. So the pastors, as a group, got to be effective. Doesn't mean that all of the pastors are as effective, but there's some dynamism in there. But as a group, they must be effective. And so Paul says, as his culminating qualification in the Titus 1 list, that the pastor elder must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, you're equipping there, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. That is, he must know the trustworthy word and be trained in it and then genuinely hold firm to it. But then begins the work of teaching in a twofold sense. Feeding the flock that is, giving instruction and sound doctrine, and then defending the flock, protecting the flock, exposing, rebuking, exposing those who contradict it. It's a real, real challenge in the, the age of the internet and remote. It used to be like all of church life was happening analog, and so the negative influences would have faces. <laughs> and they still do. I mean, things don't take root in your congregation unless they take root in people. However, uh, there are broader things happening and being passed along through the internet, which calls for, in some senses, all the more vigilance. If the pastors and elders are poor or ineffective teachers, the sheep go hungry or get eaten. So pastor and pastor elders as a team must be effective teachers. That is, effective in the context of the particular local church in which we're called. They need not compete with the world's best orators on popular podcasts or television. They must be effective teachers of their people in their congregation. When push comes to shove, the pastors and teachers, pastor elders, must get the job done or the wolves have the day. So effective at teaching, in addition to equipped. Third, eager to teach. Let me come back to where we started in the heart 
of the teaching qualification. That is the heart of a teacher. We need men who are eager to teach. Not just willing to have their arm bent once in a while to fill a slot. Not with a gun to their heads. But men who are teachers. The pastor teachers. Hebrews 13, 7 says, remember your leaders. Those who spoke to you the word of God. Hebrews could assume that the leaders were those who spoke to them the word of God because the leaders were teachers. That's what happens in Christianity. It's a word critical, a teaching critical faith. The leaders teach. And good teachers in time and with sufficient maturation come to lead. The pastor elders then are not only called to lead or govern, but first and foremost to labor in word and teaching. And since the work at its heart is the work of teaching, we want men who want to do the work. This relates back to our first session of aspiration, desire, finding joy in the work. If the, if the, if the center of the work is teaching, and they don't enjoy teaching, how are they going to labor with joy? Such teachative men or didactive men, they think like teachers first, not judges. Their orientation toward the church is not mainly as those who render verdicts, but as envisioning possibilities, providing fresh perspective and information, faithfully teaching the scriptures, making persuasive arguments, patiently reviewing and restating and illustrating and praying for God's miraculous work of life change. Teachers at heart. Isn't that amazing that when Paul speaks into how Timothy should carry himself in the midst of conflict with the false teachers in the Ephesian church, he says, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone able to teach, didacticos, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. So there's an insight for us here into what didacticos is by seeing the company it keeps in 2 Timothy 2, 24 and 25. So didacticos appears twice in the 1 Timothy 3 list. And then Titus 1.9, I think it's a, it's a fair expression of what didacticos is getting at in Titus 1.9. But the only other use of didacticos, the very word, is in this context, in 2 Timothy 2, 24-25. So look at the company it keeps. Not quarrelsome. That's interesting to pause and ponder. I won't do it here, but just sit there and, and, and pause and ponder the difference between being quarrelsome and being teachative but kind to everyone, able to teach. So not quarrelsome, kind, patient, and then gentle. Not apart from, correct, for, from correction. He talks about correction. But gentle in correcting his opponents. So able to teach here is, it's not a minimum competence, but it's a kind of virtue, a kind of magnanimity a bigness of soul that arises and can help meet the difficulties of conflict alongside kindness and patience and gentleness. Now, pastors are not only teachers. As, as overseers, they watch over the flock. 
As elders, they counsel and they guide the people. As shepherds, they muster the collective forethought to envision where to go next in church life. Where are the next green pastures? Where are the still waters? Where do we lead the sheep? How do we take them in that direction? And they wield the comfort of their rod and their staff to crack the skulls of wolves to protect the sheep. So not only does Christ gift his church with leaders who have such teaching proclivity, teachativeness, but he also, strange as might seem to us, he put the teachers in charge of the church. Think about that. He doesn't say, successful businessmen, run the church, and study guy, you teach. There's a plurality of teachers, pastor teachers, lead office. This church will be led by men who teach, who persuade, who pray, who engage the flock as teachers. And he wants those men to lead, not just feed, but lead. With all the inefficiencies that we as teachers can have. I mean, teachers can be really inefficient people. He's like, get an inefficient group, the teachers, to lead the church. Which says something about what Jesus thinks about efficiency in the local church. He's not mainly into efficient local churches, but effective local churches. And he puts inefficient people in charge who can get help from deacons. Alongside feeding is leading, teaching is governance. They're paired in several places. So 1 Thessalonians 5.12, there's a pairing. 1 Timothy 5.7 pairs ruling, leading with teaching. In a backward way, 1 Timothy 2.12, in that really memorable context about women being quiet in the assembly, pairs teaching with exercising authority. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority. He's putting those two together. And what's the next thing he's going to talk about? The elders. He goes right from chapter 2 into the eldership. So he's getting at eldership here, the pastors, the teachers, and those who teach and exercise authority. It's an amazing thing that the risen Christ would put teachers in charge of his church. So pastors teach. They are at heart teachers. The plurality of elders, in an important sense, is a team of teachers who also govern. The call to pastoral ministry is not for specialized administrators of large departments, nor is it a call for brawlers and pugilists, more on that later, who are more apt to quarrel than teach. Pastors teach and are the kind of men who will graciously, hardly cease teaching, even if you put a gun to their heads. Now, what do we say about governing? As we finish, if able to teach, didactikos, is the most central and distinctive of the elder qualifications, then I think I might label sober-minded as the most underrated, or maybe the most underappreciated. I think we kind of fly by this one, and uh, in practical church life, it is just massive all the time, because we're charged with governing. I remember on several occasions sitting around the eldership table and brainstorming names for future additions. Just to clarify with my associate here, Mike, uh, I'm not thinking of a context at our church recently. I'm thinking of in the more distant past. 
by God's grace, you know, some names are being voiced as possible elder candidates. And by God's grace, some words of praise are listed. Oh, yes, thank God we have that man. Yes, yes. And sometimes there's largely enthusiasm, but there's minor misgivings. And I noticed this on occasion. It seemed as if many of us intuited with someone whose name was suggested that something's just not quite right. It, did, it doesn't resonate. I, I, don't, I don't see him as a fit for an elder uh, at this church. But, he, but we were groping for, for language. We were groping for how to describe it. Looking back on those, I think several times we were looking for the word sober-minded. These elder qualifications, make them functional in the life of your church. When you think about candidates, review the list. It's really helpful for me when we come across folks like that to think, sober-mindedness, like this matters. It doesn't just matter that he can teach and that people see him as a leader, but is he sober-minded? Is he going to be one of the guys who contributes to the collective decisions that are balanced and helpful and sober for the life of this church in its governance? So here's where we come especially to sober-minded that it's, he doesn't simply require teachers, but they should be teachers who are sober-minded. Okay? Some guys may be really good teachers, and they may be good teachers because they're interesting, because they're quirky. But they don't, they're not wise. They're not sober-minded to help lead a local church. I said of the 15 elder qualifications in 1 Timothy that sober-mindedness might be the most underrated. So not only is teaching with preaching central to the pastor's work, but also, we saw this in 1 Peter 5 too, exercising oversight. That's important. We don't only teach. The teachers exercise oversight. Pastor elders not only labor among you as teachers, 1 Thessalonians 5, 12, but are over you. Oversight. They're over you. They lead you in the Lord. They both feed and they lead. The elder must manage his own household well because as a team, the elders are charged with managing God's household well, caring for the flock. Not only are pastors who preach and teach well worthy of honor and double honor, meaning remuneration when laboring at the work as a breadwinning vocation, but also as governors, that is elders who rule well. That's the same language of ruling, leadership, prosisteme. And so to do so requires a kind of spiritual acuity. That may be one way of saying it, sober-minded. Spiritual acuity that the New Testament calls sober-mindedness. Men who are sober-minded are level-headed. They're balanced. They're responsive to needs without being reactive to needs. They're not given to extremes. They're not suckers for myths and speculation, and conspiracy theories. They're not dragged into silly controversies. They are able to discern what emphases and preoccupations in their ministry would compromise the stewardship that's at the heart of their work. And so they stay grounded in what's most important, what's most enduring. Keeping the gospel of first importance as their center as their center, these men are able, like increasingly few modern adults, to keep their heads in all situations. That's the NIV, 1 Timothy 4, 5. Keep your head in all situations. Together, the team of 
sober-minded elders is able to navigate the complicated challenges of church life, like church-sized dynamics and generational dynamics and digital versus analog dynamics, which we're all beginning to deal with more and more. And perhaps above all, issues of timing in the life of the church. Many, both young and old, are able to see various problems. It's not hard to see problems or needs in church life. And they feel various tensions in church life. But the pastor elders are those with the collective sober-mindedness and the accompanying superpower of patience to know when to attack the challenges. That phrase is from Dan. Dan has an article at Nine Marks on the pastor's superpower of patience. And it's so good. I come to that again and again. Sober-minded pastors together as a group keep the church on its mission, keep the gospel central, and demonstrate that the essence of leadership is not personal privilege and preference, but self-giving, self-humbling, self-sacrifice for the church's good and joy in Christ. Such such sober-mindedness then, without doubt, is, is critical for our teaching as well. I mean, over time, if there's the regularity of feeding, a teacher without a sober mind, it's going to show up in quirkiness and imbalances in the teaching. It helps us determine what to teach and when and how. But such spiritual acuity especially maps onto the call to govern, govern or lead and the untiring vigilance it requires in church life. Acts 20, 28, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. The pastor elders are those who are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account, Hebrews 13, 17. So they must be sober-minded. In fact, 2 Timothy 4, 5, right after the preach the word passage, he says to Timothy, always be sober-minded. Don't take any breaks from it. There's no vacations from level-headedness in church leaders. Always be sober-minded. So how do we get a sober mind? Probably all of us with a uh, measure of humility will not presume to have a paradigmatic sober mind, but want some help with that. These elder qualifications are are meant to be analog, not digital. They're not supposed to be yes or no, like, oh, is he sober-minded or not? Like, well, I mean, we, we wrestle with that together. And all of us have room for improvement in our sober-mindedness. So how are we to get a sober mind? In Acts 6, we're not yet dealing with pastors and deacons per se, but we're dealing with apostles and what's called the seven. But we can see a kind of analog here for what's to come in local congregations. And as the seven are appointed to serve tables, that the apostles might not give up preaching the word of God, so... Local church pastors and elders have a particular calling to lead and spiritually feed the flock, and that is devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. So word, prayer, word, prayer, both of these at the heart of our work. We teach and preach the word to feed feed the church, and sober-minded men pray. They take counsel with each other. They lead the church in the ups and downs of the raging seas of life. And it will not be enough to have balanced thinkers who are not prayers. Besides, 
Prayerlessness in a Christian is evidence of imbalance. It's, if not madness, it's a kind of spiritual drunkenness rather than sobriety. Nor would it be enough to have prayerful men who don't have sober minds. We need both prayer and prudence, even as we need both preaching, teaching, and leading. And Christ appoints that his local church leaders be such prayerful, sober-minded teachers. Ask ourselves how, in our drive for efficiency, do we leave sufficient time in our elders' gatherings for prayer? Do we pray together? And there are real things we have to discuss, real decisions to be made. So we don't only pray together, but do we pray together? And do we pause at certain junctures? To, God, we need, we need particular help here. We're at this juncture. We're stuck. Would you give us grace in this moment? So all well and good, you might say, what about the gaffes in my own sober-mindedness? How do I become more sober-minded? The good news is that sobering our minds is part of the work the Holy Spirit is doing on us. All of those who are in Christ, he's working on sobering our minds in sanctification, renewing our minds. And in particular, this is the work he does over time through God's word. I don't think it's, it's magic sober-mindedness apart from the appointed instrument of God's word. However, however naturally balanced, however level-headed you might be, the word of God is critical in giving us real balance in a destabilizing world and sobering us up to what really matters in God's economy. Sober-mindedness is not a miracle that God does in just a moment, but it's the effect of a thousand early, quiet, morning miracles over his word day after day for years. As a, if you make yourself a man of the word, you're sober-mindedness. Whatever deficit you're beginning with, your sober-mindedness will increase exponentially. In the days to come, as the last 2,000 years, the church needs men who keep their heads under pressure, in conflict, in controversy. And in just the normal steady-state life of the church, we need level-headed, wise, spiritually and emotionally intelligent leaders. An accent there on the spiritual and emotional intelligence. Not IQ, spiritual and emotional intelligence, rather than those who are impulsive, imbalanced, rash, reactive, because pastor elders are not just teachers, but governors. Which leads to our concluding focus then on how a young or aspiring pastor might go about pursuing growth in teaching. So we've talked there about the word of God and the power of the spirit in growing us in sober-mindedness. Let's come back now and talk about how we might grow in our teaching. One of my big burdens here is that we not presume that teaching is this gift that someone has or they don't. And that somebody who doesn't have the gift shouldn't pursue teaching in the church or that someone has the gift need not work at it. Oh, I've got the gift. Just kind of exercise my teaching gift as I go around. Just exercise my gift. I don't like the dichotomy. Digital there. Now, with this short list on growing in our teaching, I'm assuming eagerness. I'm assuming some aspiration. Uh, without some initial eagerness or aspiration, there's just not an interest in growing in the ability to teach. 
And so I'm assuming some measure of eagerness here. And here are six avenues to consider in seeking to develop yourself as a teacher. And this is over time. Uh, Teaching and preaching is like singing, not athletics. You peak at the end of your adulthood, not the beginning. Athletes peak in their 20s. Good preachers do not peak in their 20s. For a while I've gone around saying, you peak in your 60s. And then now John Piper's 78, and I'm like, maybe your 70s. It's a lifelong trajectory of growth, like with a singing voice. Maybe you got some singer, singer guys here. Say, you don't sing your best unless, you know, <laughs> maybe some of those old uh, classic rock guys who strained their voice and burned them out. You know, they sang their best in the 20s. But a really well-trained voice matures over time into the 40s, into the 50s, maybe the 60s. With preachers, 60s. All right. Six avenues to consider seeking this lifelong trajectory of growth. Number one, know the word himself. That is Jesus. How? In the word. The gospel. How? Through the word. Scripture. So, know the word, Jesus, through the word, gospel, through the word, Scripture. Read and study and meditate on the Bible and all the Bible I, I drive this home with, with fellow pastors in a way I don't with every congregation, every, every congregant. Those who lead and aspire to lead the church, I think, would be wise to have all the biblical data pass before their eyes in every given calendar year. Obviously, there will be many passages that you not only read and study and meditate on, but teach on, perhaps multiple times a year. But reading through the Bible with some kind of plan each year at least lets the biblical text pass before you each year. That will help over time in our ability to teach, in the equipping part of teaching. Understand Scripture as a whole. And most of all, knowing and enjoying Jesus in Scripture. Number two then, self-educate in the information age. This is a step in equipping where we leverage the amazing availability of books, messages, essays, meaty articles, perhaps some limited social media exposure. Though I pause more and more to even say that because it's more and more difficult to use the medium to get to what you want. It's so much, the medium has come somewhere, it's like feeding you what it wants to feed you. It, you can, it's easier to use the internet to go get what you want. I got a, want an article on this, let me go get it. It's tough in social media. I'd highly caution you against more than a pretty modest, controlled portion of social media in the calling which we have, and make sure that the, the web and the devices serve your interest rather than letting yourself be used to serve their interest through the algorithms. And beware of the radicalizing effects of social media. Algorithms are no friend to the pursuit of sober-mindedness. If we are sober-minded, it will be despite algorithms, not because of them. Number three, pursue some formal program of training. This is, this is a dis distinct step in equipping from being a kind of lifelong learner, kind of autodidact. This goes beyond self-educating. I'm talking about some curriculum, some course of study designed by somebody other than yourself, 
to develop in knowledge and skill and fill in areas you've never gravitated to in your own study. It doesn't have to be seminary. Seminary can be great for this. But to have someone speak into your situation and say, hey, have you developed this part? You know, are you developing certain strengths? The strengths are great. We should all have particular interests and strengths that we bring to a team that we develop. But also, somebody can help round you out with the curriculum or course of study. Some kind of formal program of training, even if it's a free program designed by someone older and wiser in your church. Number four, take what at-bats you can and make them count. So now we're moving to the effectiveness, which grows over time with the Spirit's help and with hard work. You need hundreds of at-bats, not dozens. Tim Keller saying that uh, he felt like a preacher needed about 200 sermons before they really knew how to preach, kind of knew who they were, what drove them, how to prepare the message, how to deliver the message. About 200 practice sermons. <laughs> Preaching is a lifetime skill, not just something to peak in your 20s. Number five, always keep learning and be ready. I said earlier that in 2 Timothy 4, 5, he says, always be sober-minded. He says, right around the preach the word passage, 2 Timothy 4, 2, he says, preach the word. The very next thing out of his mouth when he says preach the word is, be ready in season and out of season. And again, verse 5, always be sober-minded. So, and this is for those who, who continue to learn and grow. In 1 Timothy 4, after just telling Timothy to devote himself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching, Paul says, practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Our people ought to see progress in us. In our 40s, in our 50s, in our 60s. See growth in us, particularly in our teaching. Which means this should be, hope this is encouraging, you grow in your teaching. It is not fundamentally a gift you have or do not. And then finally, rejoice more in being saved than in being a fruitful teacher. In, in seeking to grow in teaching, because we focus on teaching and deduct the cost, don't let this good thing suddenly become your king. I love the words of Jesus in Luke 10, 20. Rehearse these often. The guys just had me write on this at Desiring God last week, working on this last week. I often go back to Luke 10, 20 to steady my soul. Do not rejoice in this, Jesus says, that the spirits are subject to you as your teaching ability and your effectiveness improves and matures. Do not rejoice in your seeming fruitfulness, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. The language from Jesus is stark. It's almost like, well, can I ever rejoice in ministry joys, Jesus? I don't think he's ruling that out. I think he's, he's, he's accenting here with the stark language how much greater joy is in having your name written in heaven and knowing him than being one of his workers. He means to provoke, not speak absolutely here, as if there's no holy joy to be had in faithful, fruitful teaching, but we dare not let this joy become 
the kind that would eclipse the joy of faith itself in Christ. So, brothers, rejoice more that your names are written in heaven than in your teaching, than in your sober-mindedness. Being a Christian is 10,000 times more important than being a pastor or being a pastor teacher. 